Welcome to FinCast, the K2 Integrity podcast series. I'm Juan Zarate, global co-managing partner of K2 Integrity. You know me as the chairman of the Financial Integrity Network. Welcome back. On this episode, the outlook for financial integrity in 2021. A conversation with my great friends and partners, Danny Glazer and Chip Ponce. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. We're glad to have you back in 2021. We hope everyone is safe and well and that you're off to a good year despite the disruptions. We wanted to talk to you about the outlook for financial integrity in 2021. There's a lot to discuss, a lot that happened at the end of 2020, accelerated activity on the sanctions front, on the anti-money laundering front, uh, on the financial crime front. We want to talk to you about what we're seeing in the environment and what you should look for. And there's no better set of experts than Chip Ponce and Danny Glazer to talk us through what they're seeing for 2021. I'm going to mix in a little bit of my thoughts too, hopefully, and hope you enjoy this episode. Gentlemen, welcome. Chip, Danny, great to have you on. Great to be here, Juan. Great to be back with you and Danny. Good to be here, Juan. Nice, Danny. Thank you, Chip. Appreciate it. Let's let's talk about three big themes. And I think, you know, the three of us have talked about this quite a bit. I think the first uh, issue we want to talk about and look at is the challenge of fraud, financial fraud, cybercrime, and COVID-19 in 2021. Certainly in 2020, we saw the rise of fraud cases tied to COVID. What we heard from law enforcement publicly and privately was that uh, criminal actors were using the cloak of COVID uh, to engage in the typical typologies of financial fraud. We saw DOJ bringing dozens of cases of uh, fraud uh, over the last year. But what are we seeing next? And is it going to be a bigger problem than we think? Chip, why don't we turn to you? You've done some thinking and writing on this. What what should the audience know about fraud and COVID-19 in 2021? Oh, thanks, Juan. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to get in, get into the get into uh, the nitty gritty here. But I do think it's important before we go forward to do a quick rear view mirror so that people can understand um, the the current context in which um, risk is is um, is uh, is surfacing. We had in 2020, with the onset of the COVID virus, an obvious global health health crisis that led to social distancing around the world. And what that really meant was that more and more people were doing things online that they used to do in person. So a lot more online traffic, a lot more online financial transactions. We had a stimulus package in the United States that was replicated in financial and economic centers around the world to try to offset the economic impact of the crisis. And that led to an unprecedented volume of money moving through the system. And we had, in response to the healthcare crisis, Tremendous pressure on supply chains associated with PPE and safety equipment and uh, medical equipment, devices, uh, masks, and all the rest, all of which created tremendous opportunity for fraud. And 
What was interesting to note about that is that you had almost immediate responses from global authorities around that risk. And I'm thinking of, of the Financial Action Task Force early in the year. It may have been in April or March. It was, it was very early in the onset of the crisis where they came out quickly um, under the Chinese presidency with a, a paper on the risks associated with COVID and COVID-related relief and uh, the factors that I, I just reviewed. And the inputs into that paper alone were coming from 20 plus countries. So there was right away at attentiveness to this. But as, as the year progressed, we saw more and more cases of, of predicate offenders, really the fraudsters, um, coming to light. What we haven't seen, and this starts to set the stage for what I think 2021 may look like, is the role of financial institutions in uncovering those frauds and the expectations of the AML-CFT system for financial institutions in applying their AML programs to detect such kinds of fraud. And there are real challenges and interesting observations around how that might be done and how that might inform expectations um, in 2021. So happy to elaborate, but that's that's my, my basic take. That's great, Chip. And just your last point is interesting because I think there's going to be more and more pressure on at least sophisticated financial institutions to think a bit differently about how their anti-fraud systems, their anti-money laundering systems, um, their cyber systems all relate to each other, right? And this is something we've talked about for some time uh, publicly and with clients, which is the the intersection of these of these threat vectors and the need to have systems and and the controls within an institution actually talking to each other so that they can discover risk and, and manage it, especially before it goes to scale. And the problem is um, these are risk uh, sort of disciplines and systems that tend to be stovepiped, at least have been over time. And I think this is going to force to force a reevaluation of how those systems talk to each other, how the teams managing those risks uh, deal with each other, and frankly, how cyber ultimately is an enabler for security as opposed to a, a point of vulnerability, to your, to your point. Um, Chip, just one other one other question for you. Do you do you think we're going to see more organized dimensions of financial crime around fraud? Because we've certainly seen reports of the mafia in Italy. We know some of the cartels in Mexico are trying to take full advantage of obviously the billions of, of relief flowing into the economy, but also the potential for fraud. Are you, do you think that's something uh, that folks should be on the lookout for? Absolutely. I think that the more elaborate fraud schemes uh, are, 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 are in front of us, not behind us in terms of detection. Um, we're talking about trillions of dollars of stimulus in the United States alone. Again, unprecedented. And it will, as, as we know, it takes years to uncover sophisticated financial crime and, and the networks um, behind that. Um, and we're not even one year through the crisis. So I, I think in 2021, we're going to start to see more sophisticated forms of fraud emerge based on investigations as those investigations mature. And, and it's going to lead to, to really two, I think, impacts on um, AML systems globally. Uh, one, of, one of which you, you've pointed to, which is the convergence of fraud and AML in a way that was already happening, but it's going to accelerate. Continuing on that theme, a utility model where we look at information that is accessible to choke points in the system. So think of a distributor from the small business um, administration to, um, to global banks and what they may be seeing that 
may be of use to those that are further downstream um, in, in the relief or distribution or financial process. There has to be, I think, um, greater attentiveness towards exploiting that bulk information in ways that are, are more effective in detecting the more sophisticated types of crime that, that you're referencing with organized crime. And, and the second, I think, development that we're going to see is a questioning of how AML, AML systems, and in particular transaction monitoring systems, can be tuned to detect uh, the types of fraud that are already emerging in the, mar- in, in the market from the cases that have been revealed, and how financial institutions are adjusting their AML programs, even in a look-back way, to try to detect what's happened with stimulus money that's run through their doors. Fascinating, Chip. Thank you. And we're going to come back to the tech innovation point at the uh, at the tail end of the of this uh, episode. Danny, let's let's get you into the conversation, and let's turn to a second key theme and topic, which is what comes next with sanctions and the broader question of national economic security, of which sanctions and financial measures are a part. We ended 2020 with a flurry of sanctions-related activities and announcements tied to Iran, Chinese military companies, the designation of Cuba as a state sponsor of terror. And we entered uh, the new year with questions as to how the Biden administration would think about uh, sanctions. And uh, Secretary of the Treasury Yellen announcing she will uh, review the use of sanctions um, in, in the coming weeks. But Danny, what what are your thoughts on an arena that you played a leading role in help, helping shape and certainly led in the Obama administration? What's your sense of what's coming next in this field? Well, thanks, Juan. And I think it's uh, important to remember that, that sanctions and, and other financial measures are, are firmly ensconced uh, as, a, as a tool of, of U.S. national security and of U.S. foreign policy. And that's not that's not going to change any any time soon. It's it's proved it's proved too useful. It's too uh, proved too effective. And it's not a, a a Trump administration innovation. If anything, it was a Bush administration innovation. Uh, the Bush administration uh, really did lead the way in deploying sanctions and other financial measures in the context of counterterrorism and in the context of North Korea and Iran. And that was embraced and in certain ways expanded by the Obama administration. And, 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 and then the Obama administration sanctions in many ways were continued um, under, the, under the Trump administration with additional sanctions being added on. So I don't think there's any reason uh, to believe that the Biden administration is gonna go in a different direction as it comes to the use of, of the tool. Uh, in, in fact, so many people that are gonna be in the Biden administration are people who had key roles in the Obama administration who demonstrated their willingness to use the tool. I do think that you're going to see them used uh, a little bit differently to support a different set of foreign policy and national security priorities. And that's, uh, and that's to be expected, given that these are tools to advance those priorities. So, you know, with respect to tools that had, you know, the policies and sanction programs that we've seen and been used to for some time with respect to, say, Iran, I think that that the sanctions will follow where the Biden administration goes, and if the Biden administration is able to resuscitate uh, the uh, the nuclear deal, um, then I think you're going to see uh, the the U.S. government move towards loosening uh, the Iran sanctions in the same way that the Obama administration did in its final year. But I think you're also going to find that those sanctions aren't going to completely disappear. There's human rights sanctions. There's nuclear sanctions. Um, there's uh, global anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing restrictions with respect to Iran. 
and uh, just as those uh, all of those financial measures um, prevented Iran from getting full you know full economic relief that it was looking for, I think those challenges are going to remain, and businesses that are looking uh, to you know towards that market are still going to find complications. I think you're going to find a, a Biden administration. Uh, will reaffirm and maybe even in certain ways strengthen uh, the uh, Russia-related sanctions. I think what a difference might be that the Biden administration uh, will uh, be looking uh, to impose the sanctions more directly on Russia rather than on uh, rather than using them as leverage uh, with respect to U.S. allies in Europe. So you know, there's there's these are the sanctions programs and sanctions issues that, while they will evolve, will in in, in many ways uh, continue. I think what's interesting to think about is is where the Biden administration is going to go in in what I would consider to be the new frontier of financial measures, the new frontier on sanctions, and what are the new policy initiatives. I think the most important uh, question that's facing uh, the Biden administration uh, is China. Wherever we go with China, China is evolving um, into a more adversarial uh, relationship with the United States than it's ever had in the past. Um, and I don't think that's going to change in the Biden administration. And I think it's going to be a, a, a really interesting uh, area to watch in how um, the U.S., not only U.S. policy evolves with respect to China, but how U.S. financial measures and sanctions policy re- uh, re- uh, evolve with respect to China. Um, how do you create an economic pressure strategy uh, with respect to you know, the second largest or second largest economy in the world? Uh, this, these are these are problems that 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 no previous administration has faced before. Certainly not the Bush or Obama administrations, and I don't think really the Trump administration ever grappled with that in a serious way. But you know, this is something that the Biden administration is going to have to really think through. I think there's other priorities that the Biden administration is already articulating that's going to lend themselves to financial measures and sanctions, whether it's corruption, which uh, President um, Biden has said is a uh, is a priority of his, whether it's advancing human rights, whether it's confronting uh, uh, white supremacy and right-wing extremism, both domestically and around the world. These are all areas uh, where the use of sanctions and the use of other financial tools um, are going to be central to how the Biden administration approaches it. It's going to be very interesting to watch. Fantastic insights, Danny. And and of course, um, some of the audience may recognize that you had a great piece in the Washington Post last year talking about the use of treasury tools and treasury attention on the growing problem of domestic extremism and far-right extremism, not just in the United States, but globally. That was a great piece and an important one, Danny. Your point on China, I want to I just drill down a little bit because I think you've got the complexity of how you use these tools in, a, in an entangled relationship and one that's evolving quickly. Um, and in particular, Particular on the data and technology side, so you know one of the one of the questions is how do you deal with Chinese tech giants or uh, state-owned enterprises that are expanding beyond their borders? The challenge of of Chinese entities gathering more data, and you know the the Chinese surveillance state in many ways being exported uh, beyond their borders. So that that I think is is a fascinating question, Danny. How, how do you how do you see this playing out? not just in terms of policy, but in terms of uh, other agencies of government that have to weigh in on, you know, key questions of how you deal with a China that's that's growing and is a, a real challenge to U.S. primacy. Yeah, well, this is this is the this is the great, you know, foreign policy and national security question of, of the upcoming generation. 
And as, as you point out, we're going to have to work out, we, the United States, are going to have to work out how we see our, ourselves postured vis-a-vis -vis China very broadly, and then establish some sort of doctrine um, for, our, for how we're going to coexist or not coexist with China, and then bring the various tools uh, that the United States has to bear in, in, in trying to work towards that. And this is going to be, this is not going to be a, a task of, of, of this year or next year. And frankly, it's not even going to just be a task of the Biden administration. It's going to be, it's going to be the great challenge of the United States moving forward for, for the next generation. And, you know, how sanctions and financial tools are going to play into that um, is, is a great question. You brought up the complexities. Look, when we first started using sanctions in a strategic way following 9-11, we were targeting, you know, non-government actors. Then that, that expanded to uh, government actors like North Korea, which is not a significant player in the international financial system, and expanded to Iran, which is more of a player in the international financial system, given, given the fact that they, they have oil. But the fact of the matter is not, not as big a player in the international financial system as they believe they are, as some people like to say they are. And then that expanded again um, uh, to Russia, a country that really is uh, very you know, closely integrated into the international financial system, certainly into the European financial system. And you saw how the sanctions policies had to, had to evolve with that, and how much more complex uh, the the, uh, the the U.S. sanctions are vis-a-vis -vis Russia than they are with respect to any other country. Well, you know, China is is, is Russia times ten, and so there's going to have to be a lot of thought and a lot of creativity going into you know how you can impose financial costs on China, how you you know what is going to be the connectivity between U.S. and the Chinese uh, financial systems, what is going to be the you know connectivity between U.S. businesses and China. You know, this is going to get into, into broad security issues, broad economic issues, broad trade issues. And then the, you know, the sanctions and other financial measures are going to have to follow from there. But remember, we're also going to have to be cooperating with China um, on, 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 on many problems. Take North Korea, for example. Uh, what we found out from uh, maximum, quote-unquote, maximum pressure in the, in the Trump administration uh, is that the United States working alone is not going to sanction uh, North Korea into submission. That this is going to have to be something that we're going to work on, work on with our friends or, or at least, uh, you know, non-enemies in the region that share an interest uh, in ensuring, a, you know, a, a denuclearized uh, Korean Peninsula. And China's going to have to be a part of that. And so that's going to be, you know, that's going to be uh, an interesting, you know, an interesting uh, dance uh, that the Biden administration is going to have to do on when to, when to cooperate with China uh, and, and, and when, to, uh, when to be in more of an adversarial position. Well said, Danny. And and I think the desire to change the tonality and the use of sanctions, or at least to put them more in a multilateral framework, uh, will obviously be something the Biden administration tries to do. What's interesting there is it plays right to, I think, the evolution of these sanctions in terms of the type of conduct that the sanctions are intended to address. And certainly there are transatlantic divides, um, especially in recent years, in terms of the use of sanctions and where they're applied. But there's a lot of convergence, and I think you're going to see some of that convergence play out. There's been a convergence on the human rights, uh, the use of sanctions for human rights purposes, for dealing with cyber malicious activity. Certainly, that's of concern with Russia. Um, even uh, the application of, uh, of tools for sanctions evasion or application of sanctions in the maritime domain, which is now much more of a focus on both sides of the Atlantic. So 
I, I think there's there's a there's a lot of room for exposure of alignment and convergence of sanctions as opposed to the divergence, which has been so much the uh, the the narrative in, in recent years. Can I just pick up on that for one second? Because yeah, go for it. Listening to you and Danny, and and uh, I could listen to you guys all day long on on um, the evolution of sanctions and geopolitics and collective security. Two two thematics that I think are consistent with what you're saying, and that may resonate for those. Um, upon whom um, implementation of sanctions really relies. And and the, the first is what you're getting at with convergence in, in two respects. One is in the practical implementation of financial institutions and their financial crime compliance programs that AML, as we knew post 9-11, is now so squarely a prerequisite for effective oper- operationalization of sanctions. And you see that in the Russia program that Danny's described, but you see it more and more in all of the sanctions programs around Sanctions-related due diligence and controls that are blended more and more with AML, even before you get to sanctions for their requirements that look a lot more like AML, which isn't necessarily an asset freeze, but a set of of prohibitions controlling types of activities within certain groups or actors like sectoral sanctions. So I think you're going to see more of that as we point to the complexity that Danny was making. And the second area of, of convergence is really around um, what we see is, is uh, are the sticks of, of national security um, policy in the form of economic and financial measures being integrated into a, a more comp- complex economic and financial power structure, which is something I know, Juan, you've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about. Um, and that gets into the coexistence points that Danny is making about um, that we have to have a more complex way of dealing with a more complex actor that, that, that is a competitor and a collaborator and a, um, a frenemy in many ways uh, vis-a-vis other other collective security threats that we have to cooperate on. So I think it's going to be a fascinating um, uh, 2021 as, as those issues start to come to the fore with the new administration. Um, I just wanted to wanted to point that out. Absolutely. That's, that's fantastic uh, bow-tying chip on, on the topic, which is a great segue as well to our third thematic that we wanted to talk about, which is the AML Reform Act and the evolution of the AML system uh, as we enter 2021. Um, in 2020, you certainly saw greater and greater focus on what I've called the quest for effectiveness, uh, the question of whether or not the, the current anti-money laundering system is fit for purpose, whether or not it's as effective, certainly as efficient as it can be. And I think the answer is no. And I think more and more uh, actors in the space have recognized that. What's fascinating, certainly what happened at the tail end of 2020 with the passage of the NDAA, for, for those who don't know, that's uh, Defense Authorization Act that had as part of it the AML Reform Act, which was possibly the, the most uh, sweeping reform of the U.S. anti-money laundering system uh, since the passage of the Patriot Act, Title III of the Patriot Act in 2001. Um, and we wanted to talk about that because that is a significant moment. It reflects a desire for greater effectiveness, greater transparency, uh, greater innovation in the anti-money laundering system. And wanted to talk to Danny and Chip about that, given their long history in this space and the fact that they've witnessed the evolution of the Bank Secrecy Act in the U.S. from many, many years ago. So, uh, Danny, let me let me just start with you. In, in terms of any sort of initial impressions or any forecasting for 2021 coming out of the Reform Act, and then, Chip, I want to come back to you on what you're seeing and, and maybe come back to the innovation point you'd made earlier. Well, Lana, I think there's two uh, important uh, important 
things that at least I take uh, from the the new money laundering reform act. The first being the refer uh, the 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 improvements made with respect to the identification of beneficial owners uh, of of U.S. companies. This is this is something I think the world has been waiting for for a long time. Uh, it it brings the United States into compliance with international standards, uh, and it it puts the United States in a position where we could now go around the world uh, and make sure that this is a, a globally a, a adopted and implemented um, in 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 all the important financial centers and all the important centers where where companies are being being created, and ultimately I think is going to greatly benefit um, U.S. law enforcement. U.S. Uh, supervisors and, and, and banks and banks themselves, and being able to know exactly who they're doing business with, and so I, and this is this was I, I think perhaps the most important aspect of of the new uh, money laundering reform act. I think Juan, your your reference to uh, technology uh, and uh, the foreshadowing of, of of bigger things to come in the future with respect to how technology is going to transform. Uh, the compliance uh, industry uh, and transform AML CFT compliance in the way that it's transformed so many other uh, industries. And and you know right now, and Chip Chip's fond of saying it, so I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll attribute this thought to Chip. But you know the 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 U.S. AML CFT compliance system is 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 built on 20th century infrastructure, uh, and we're you know we're almost 25 uh, percent of the way through the 21st century at this point. And we're still we're still thinking about it in a very old-fashioned way, and it's 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 great to see uh, that um, that that Congress is is starting to understand that we need to be that we need to be uh, evolving uh, towards a system that relies more heavily on technology, more heavily on data analysis, um, and more heavily on um, different different ways of, uh, of 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 creating efficiencies than currently exist now, because what exists now has a tremendous amount of burdens and hardships for financial institutions um, and is not giving us the benefits uh, that I think we, we we should be expecting. That's great, Danny. By the way, I know you and Chip um, suffered the floggings from your FATF colleagues in the international community for the lack of beneficial ownership um, rules and uh, corporate registry and all the rest. And so I, I know uh, you both bear the scars of those debates over the years, Chip, with the remaining minutes we have left, what what are your thoughts on what is potentially you know one of the most significant uh, steps in the AML uh, regime in some time? Well, thanks, Juan, and, and couldn't agree more with Danny. He's he spot on as always with, uh, with with some of the wave top signature uh, aspects of of the Reform Act. Um, I'd back the lens up to start even further and just and just characterize the entire act as. What, we, what we've been saying as potentially transformative. And I say that because there are elements of the act that are sweeping in, in importance, but are also just codifying what has been an emerging set of practices and realities for years, and in some cases, several years. But there are also elements of the act that really are um, going to change the way that the AMLCT regime is implemented if they are carried forward through rulemaking in um, in an ambitious and aggressive way. So that leads to the second big take home, which is that implementation of this act is going to take years. It took us years to implement Title III of the USA Patriot Act, which was the last major overhaul to the USA MLCFT regime. And this is going to be no different. And um, unlike 9-11, we don't have the burning memory of a terrorist attack to fuel um, the prioritization of rulemaking to implement this. And it's going to be really important for the leadership of the new administration 
to prioritize uh, the rulemaking in this act and to really tap the full potential that it represents to transform the regime. It will take time, but it also requires um, consistent attentiveness. So those are overarching comments. Um, Quickly on more substantive grounds, um, I, I think the starting point here is to look at the objectives of the act itself. We have said, thanks to you two more than anyone, for 20 years in the United States and the international financial system that the purpose of an AML-CFT regime is ultimately to protect the integrity of the financial system and to safeguard collective security. We have said those words forever. They are now reflected in the law. And the reason why that's more than symbolic is that the law, um, really since 1971, when the BSA was adopted, has positioned the private sector and financial institutions more or less as service providers to the government to say, financial institutions, here's the basic deal. You have all the information about risk. Can you record and report some of that information to us so that we, the government, can address those concerns? That's more or less been the history of the thematic of the BSA. And the objectives now have changed to include the words that I opened with about protecting the integrity of the financial system and safeguarding our collective security or national security. And and with that, to ground those much more sweeping objectives the requirement for financial institutions to continually assess and manage risk of money laundering and illicit finance. That's a very different set of objectives than producing information useful to authorities. And that is a, again, something that I think codifies what's been happening in practice, but now squarely establishes the goalposts where they need to be. So that's a, that's a big deal in my mind. More quickly, the company information reform that Danny mentioned, absolutely um, a practical signature and transformative moment. Um, Really important implementation here to see how um, the rulemaking on this uh, dovetails with the now existent requirements for our financial institutions to get beneficial ownership from the legal entities that they bank. Those requirements and the ones that have been passed in this act are not identical, but they need to be harmonious. And a lot of that's going to depend on the rulemaking that's forthcoming. So much to watch there in 2021. That is a one-year requirement. Two more themes, governance and the risk-based approach. This has been um, the battleground um, of the global AML-CFT community for a decade plus. What is a risk-based approach? How do we assess ultimately effectiveness in ways that are sustainable? These are words that have been swirling around AML reform globally in the U.S. for several years, um, and this act takes those head-on with a number of requirements that are aimed at achieving more transparent governance more um, aligned expectations through training, through technology, through reporting, through metrics, and through re-examination of the utility of information that we're collecting. Um, All good signs of focusing on effectiveness and sustainability and implementing a risk-based approach that's been easy to say, um, but much harder to implement in practice. And the last piece is really getting the coverage. When we talk about the coverage of the BSA, which which was expanded dramatically after 9-11 through Title II, the Patriot Act, Expanded less dramatically, but importantly in this act, to include antiquity dealers in the United States um, whose industry has been penetrated and abused by illicit actors. There's been plenty of reporting on that. A study on the broader art market in the U.S. to consider covering the broader art market the way that the Europeans have through the Fifth Money Laundering Directive. A study on real estate, which has been subject to geographic targeting orders for several years and looking at more systemic enduring regulation of that market, whether through title insurance companies or otherwise. And finally, a study on gatekeepers, which is going to implicate um, the legal community. And that's going to be an interesting one to watch because that starts with company formation agents 
and it and it ultimately sweeps in um, attorneys, accountants, um, and company service providers in ways that um, are now going to be subject to reporting from Treasury for purposes of determining additional expansion of the BSA. So that coverage issue is a, is, is a third and final point I would make. Chip, that's phenomenal. I, I'm assuming that the listeners, especially the practitioners, were taking notes. I was <laughs> on what you were saying. And for for listeners who, who don't know Chip's background, you know you should know that this act was really the codification of much of what Chip has been working on over the past 15 years. It certainly reflected the work of what Danny and Chip had done at Treasury and uh, really kudos to everybody who had a hand in this reform act. Juan, can I just jump in there real fast? Because it's so important to to recognize, acknowledge, and thank um, literally a, a generation even before I arrived, of which Danny was part of that generation as well, although he's only mildly older. Um, you know, so many, so much of this has come from work that um, predates my time at Treasury, that postdates my time at Treasury. It is it is a real win for everyone who is in the. AML CFT progressive arena. And yet it's it, it's a win that we can't really pocket yet because of the forthcoming regulation that's really going to determine how how effective this is. But it, it is worth celebrating and thanking everyone who helped get us here and just a call to action to stay attentive so the rulemaking and the implementation of this is as ambitious as the act itself. You heard the true believer right there. That's that's the definition of it. Thank you, Chip. The only thing I would add is my uh, and, and it feeds off of what Danny was saying earlier. My deep interest in seeing the acceleration of new technologies and new capabilities. I think the the hunger for better forms of information sharing, more efficient prioritization, better use of data that obviously respects privacy, uh, that takes advantage of, of machine learning and uh, even privacy enabling technologies. Uh, it's something that we're invested in as a company. We launched a company called Consilient at the end of last year, a joint venture between K2 Integrity and uh, Giant Oak Technologies in partnership with Intel to bring federated data analytics to the AML system. And so for us, there's deep enthusiasm with the AML Reform Act because it goes right to the heart of what we've been doing from a policy, policy perspective with all of you for so many years, but also it meets some of the commercial needs that we know are out there and we're trying to to create and design uh, along with others. So that's it for now. Th those are three great topics. We could have extended the list to a top 10 list. We would have been here for three hours, I think. Uh, but Danny, Chip, I want to thank you both for your insights. There's going to be a lot more to talk about this year. So we'll have more podcasts, more FinCasts, and we'll certainly be uh, publishing things on the Dolphin platform. Uh, for those who haven't been on it, you should see what we've got on Dolphin. It's the premier resource center in this space. Uh, Danny Chip, thank you again. Pleasure. <laughs> we'll catch you next time on FinCast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.